Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Linda Calhoun, founder and executive producer, Career Girls, and chair of the club's International Relations member-led forum. I have just a couple housekeeping announcements before I introduce our moderator, International Relations Vice Chair Frank Price, who will introduce our panel on supporting women and girls empowerment around the world. Our programs are free. However, we would be delighted if you would go to commonwealthclub.org to donate. And special thanks to those of you who have already donated. We are the nation's oldest and largest public affairs forum. As a nonprofit that generates revenue through events, you can imagine how much we appreciate your donation during these difficult times. And now I'm delighted to turn the program over to Frank Price. Frank is Vice President of Team Building Unlimited, an interactive team building company that provides communication team bonding, and business strategy experiences to private and corporate clients throughout the United States. Frank also served three years in Peace Corps and Ivory Coast, and he's currently on the board of the Northern California Peace Corps. And now I'd love to have you take it away, Frank, and I'll be back with questions in about 45 minutes. Take care. Thank you, Linda. It is my honor to introduce the distinguished members of our panel who will be sharing their work to support girls and women empowerment around the world. You will hear from today Dr. Beverly Thompson of Career Girls, Liz Fanning of Core Africa, Evelyn Kiomian of the Karat School Project, uh, Lynn Foden of Thrive Networks, and Carrie Johnson of Girls on the Run of Lancaster and Lebanon counties in Pennsylvania. Uh, Please join me in welcoming our panel, and let's begin the discussion. I'm going to start first with uh, uh, Beverly. Uh, Please tell us who you are, what your organization provides, as well as why and where, and also what you do within your organization. Thank you. Um, And thank you for the opportunity to participate on this panel. This is really exciting. Um, Again, my name is Beverly Thompson. I am board member and lead for Career Girls Africa. I also support a lot of our metrics and impact development strategies work. Um, So careergirls.org is a video-based career exploration tool for girls. We have the largest online a collection of career guidance and empowerment videos focusing exclusively on diverse and accomplished women. Um, Our collection includes 11,000 plus video clips featuring 600 plus women role models working in hundreds of careers in the U.S. and around the world, including two video sheets in Africa. Um, We place an emphasis on STEM careers and have 130 plus STEM role models. Um, we, have, we are in 232 countries and territories, 16 million page views on the web. And currently we have been working in Rwanda, um, 
with girl-focused organizations such as Starlight Africa, Girl Guides of Rwanda, and Mothering Across Continents, um, engaging nearly 2,000 girls to learn about STEM subjects and STEM careers. Thank you. Liz, would you like me to repeat the question again? <laughs> I didn't hear it, but I think I, it's the same question for Beverly, right? Yes. Okay, sure. Thanks. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. I am the founder of Core Africa. Um, like Frank, I was a Peace Corps volunteer and I served in Morocco. And I met a lot of young Moroccans who asked me if they could be Peace Corps volunteers so they could help their countries. And I had to say, no, it's only for Americans. Um, so 20 years later, I started Core Africa so that young Africans can serve like Peace Corps volunteers in their own countries. Um, we have extensive training like Peace Corps, and they go live in rural high-poverty communities for uh, 10 months of their service. Um, they learn local dialects, and they live with the people as they do, eat what they eat, sleep where they sleep. Um, and they don't go in with the project like Peace Corps volunteers. They, um, we train them in facilitation and problem-solving skills. So they help the people identify a project that they want and connect them to the resources to make it happen. Um, as far as women's empowerment, um, we train every volunteer in the importance um, and the synergistic impact of focusing projects on women and girls. Um, you teach a man to, what do you give a man to fish? You feed him for a day, you teach him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. You teach a woman to fish, you feed everyone. So, um, uh, most, actually, we have gender-neutral outreach for our volunteers the very first year. For some reason, we had 10 volunteers in Morocco in the first group. Nine of them were women, um, which was we didn't plan that. Um, the next year, we had 20 volunteers. Uh, 17 of them were men. So, I mean, who knows? Uh, I think it's because the girls were so pretty the first year. But whatever. I think basically it's half and half. But sometimes the uh, men actually... Um, do amazing projects that benefit women. They're able to work with the village leaders. And so sometimes they're more effective. But having women living in high poverty villages, these are college educated young Africans choosing to go live in a rural village for a year. Um, they can be incredible role models for the young girls there. Um, so we are in Morocco. We expanded to Senegal, um, Malawi, and Rwanda. And right now we have 56 volunteers. We've had hundreds of volunteers in the last seven years. Evelyn? Yes. <laughs> well, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Evelyn Kilmian, and um, I am the founder of the Carrot School Project. Um, I want to thank this amazing panel. It's actually very exciting to be here with all of you and who are doing an amazing job um, around the world. So the Carrot School Project um, is an organization that was founded because I have to take a look back at my own life, how I grew up. I'm child number seven, born in Ivory Coast. Uh, my family was poor. Only my dad worked. And my sisters have made enough mistake to reinforce the cultural belief that girls don't belong in school. So I had to fight myself, my way into getting into school in the first place, right? And so uh, now that I live here and I've gone back to school and agree and I've raised my son here, looking back at the conference brings something that really made a difference for myself to begin with, right? And so that's how the Care School Project was born. And uh, we're a direct service. We provide education, meals, 
and urgently needed necessities to children and women who live in uh, extreme poverty. So we're currently in the Ivory Coast. Uh, 2018, we're looking forward to go to Guinea. And um, that is not happening yet, thanks to COVID. But as far as the Ivory Coast goes, we have a school that is open to all gender children. And we really want to put an emphasis on bringing girls into school because when you look at the statistics, even when you look at the numbers of students that we have, we are in our second year of operation as a full-time school. We have 35 students. We only have 11 girls. So the fight hasn't changed decades after I was able to go to school. It's still the same thing. We are serving children who are doing some type of um, labor. So they're either selling items on the street or they're working in cacao farms so that we can have delicious chocolate in third world countries. And because girls tend to uh, produce more or have a more a better work ethic, there are more girls uh, on the street and doing these works over boys. And so we are trying our best to get more of these girls into school. And we're doing that by having a more holistic look at why they're out there. They're out there to feed your family, so we feed them. And we also take care of the mothers and make sure we're getting them trained um, so that they can become entrepreneurs and we're empowering them to know their rights. And we're bringing also some health uh, education and services whenever it's needed so that the community in within itself can not just receive education, but they can um, be uplifted in a more organic and holistic way. So that's what we've been doing uh, with the Care School Project. I am a mother of one. My son is uh, now in his third year of college and um, I live right in the middle of the peninsula. So that's who I am and what I do. Carrie, you're up next. Thank you, Frank. Uh, My name's Carrie Johnson. I'm the founder and executive director of Girls on the Run in Lancaster and Lebanon. We are one of over 200 Girls on the Run councils throughout the United States. And uh, our vision, really, we envision a world where every girl knows and activates her limitless potential and is free to boldly pursue her dreams, which is probably music to everyone's ears who's listening to this. Um, our program is for third through eighth graders. Um, it's, a, it's an after-school physical activity, positive youth development program. Uh, it's 10 weeks long. We meet twice a week, so with 20 lessons, and the curriculum is very intentional in highlighting our five C's plus one, and those five C's are confidence, competence, caring, character, connection, and then the plus one is contribution when all five of those are empowered and, and lit, lit up. Our season ends with a season culminating 5K, and the Girls on the Run 5K series happens to be the largest 5K series in the United States, and there is so much more to crossing that finish line than the actual physical act of crossing that finish line, as you can imagine. So girls cross that finish line at the end of the 10-week season with tools to celebrate their bodies to share their voices in positive ways, to activate their power, and to really be the boss of their own brains. Um, Our outcomes are really significant. 97% of our girls say they learn critical life skills during the season, such as resolving conflict, intentional decision-making, helping others, and managing emotions. And they learn to do those things not only at school, at home, and also with their friends. So um, we've served as 
an organization, 1.9 million girls since in the 23 years that we've been in existence. And here in Lancaster, we've served over 16,000 girls in the 10 years that we've been together. So really, we're all about tapping into that limitless potential and helping our girls realize their limitless potential and creating a t- continuum of confidence. Beyond eighth grade, we encourage junior coaches to get involved, and our volunteer coaches really lead and facilitate the curriculum. And, uh, and then beyond that, we have a junior board, and we have all kinds of ways that um, women and men can stay involved and really reap the benefits of this positive mission. Thank you very much. Lynn? Great. Thanks, all. Um, It's a perfect day to have this panel because some of you may know today is International Menstrual Hygiene Management Day and Menstrual Health Day, and which is something that is celebrated around the world with a lot of advocacy to help to reduce the taboos and stereotypes around menstrual health. It's very important for girls as they're going back to school. So it's a perfect day to have this panel together. Um, but for myself, uh, I'm Lynn Foden. I'm the CEO of Thrive Networks. And my journey began also as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Congo, where I worked in building piped water systems and latrines and community health education. Um, but what I really learned there was that as a foreign woman, woman I had... Um, tremendous privilege in being able to move almost seamlessly between the men's world and being allowed to go to different meetings, sit with engineers, do all that technical stuff. But yet as a woman, I also had the privilege of being able to sit in the kitchen and to understand what was going on, to go in the fields. And so I was really able to hear at the ground level What are the constraints, the barriers, the obstacles, but also the opportunities that women can break down in being involved in the provision of water and sanitation? And so now as the CEO of Thrive Networks, um, we work in Southeast Asia for over 30 years, transforming lives in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And our main focus is on providing access to basic services, including and focused on water, sanitation, health and hygiene, water and sanitation in schools. And we do this through public-private partnerships because we believe that it's very important to have communities, civil society, government, and the private sector all working collaboratively. Because if you take out any of those components, it's like your stool without the without all of the legs, it's gonna fall over. And so we wanna make sure that we're working through that kind of a collaborative approach through public-private partnerships and involving communities. Um, in our over 30 years, um, we've built over 500,000 latrines across the three countries, over 300 water systems. Um, but I think probably the most important thing that we've done is that we've trained and empowered over 15,000 women. Um, and this has been at various levels, from the household level, in terms of what do you need to do to be able to keep your family safe? How do you get the water? How do you store it properly? Proper hygiene? but also at the household level, helping 
to know like what is a good latrine? How do I talk to the mason who's building it? Am I getting a good deal? Where do I get the money for it? So we look at the household level, but then we also look at the community level and then at the national level so that women's group at the national level have a seat at the table when there are policy decisions that are coming down. So our training is really at those three levels because we really believe that for women and girls to be able to um, have that influence, it starts at the home, it moves to the community, but then we need to have a seat at the table, have the tools to be able to influence policy, decision makers, and investment. So thanks. Thank you, Lynn. Okay, the next question is for Liz, and it's actually a two-part question. One is, what kinds of community projects does Core Africa, Africa volunteers implement that directly empower girls and women? And how does Core Africa Service open up doors for young African women? Thank you so much, Frank. Those are great questions. Um, Core Africa volunteers do projects all over the map because they're whatever the people say they want. Um, the ones that I thought of that empower women are uh, mostly economic um, and financial um, independence, uh, tailoring projects, teaching them how to become tailors or bakeries, or um, there's a goat breeding project in, I think, Senegal. Um peanut butter processing. So basically able to market, to, to um, finance, um, monetize the work that they're doing and help them sell. Um, they, the, the, uh, these are all small scale, high impact projects um, that are distinct from other projects. So the women, almost all volunteers actually also tutor women, teach them how to read. Um, they have a lot of community centers, so they have a space for women to gather outside of their homes and learn how to read or use the computer. Um, and as far as opening up doors for women, I mean, it's it's like Peace Corps is for us. It's a chance to get out of your comfort zone and go live far away and get away from everything that you know, your family, your friends, and go to a new place and have this transformative experience where you are becoming a part of a community that's so unlike your own and they become your family and you become um, part of that community and that stays with you forever. That, that experience, it's about, um, you know, like Peace Corps, the highs are really high, the lows are really low. Um, you also create this community amongst the volunteers themselves. They become a really important personal and professional network that lasts a lifetime once they finish their service and they're part of the alumni association, the personal and professional development opportunities kick in. Um, so it really, it's about um, giving these young girls who often have a hard time finding their place in the world and finding something that they can call their own and try. And, you know, there's also the opportunity to, you know, the freedom to fail, freedom to try something new, uh, which is, which benefits everybody. But for girls, especially, I think they have, fewer opportunities to to really get out on their own and do something independent of everyone else that they that they know. Does that answer your question? It certainly does. I want to thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Beverly, I have a two-part question for you. Uh, first of all, what is your mobile learning center and why did you create it? And the second part is, how do you make the experience that you're, you're presenting relevant in Rwanda uh, to girls in rural rural areas? Um, so our mobile learning center is really focused on how do you provide uh, offline learning for girls in rural locations. And so if you have a situation where 
we have this great material. We have page views uh, from 232 countries around the world, but we've, we get a lot of questions uh, when we're traveling and talking about our product is how can you make it available to girls in areas where there's low resources, uh, no internet, uh, no electricity, uh, no resources where they can actually tap into uh, an internet. So what we decided to do was to pair with World Possible, that makes the Rachel. Uh, several of our panelists probably know about uh, the Rachel. Um, it allows you to basically take your educational um, website and clone it and make it available on this device that actually works as a server and a Wi-Fi. So anyone who has access uh, who has Wi-Fi on their computer, their tablet, of their phone can connect to the Rachel, and they can work it as if they're um, on the internet pretty seamlessly. So our first goal in providing um, our content offline was to get the website cloned. We were able to do that. That was really important to us for the next step that we wanted to do. And the next step is that we actually wanted to provide an opportunity to um, basically demonstrate in a pilot project in Rwanda how um, a teacher or parent um, who may want to actually use the materials that we have um, to conduct classes can do it easily. And so what we did in our pilot project was um, we worked with an organization called Starlight Africa and they are a group of wonderful, amazing um, engineers uh, in their early 20s, um, specializing in renewable energy. We paired with them to actually do a four-week pilot project using um, our clone uh, website on the Rachel. So what we did was um, they uh, picked two schools with 100 girls, and we had two and a half hour sessions for um, um, four Saturdays uh, in May and June of last year. And it was an opportunity to basically show any teacher, any parent that um, they could use this material just with um, a projector and a solar charger. And they could literally take all of our lessons that are available about our role models, about STEM, about empowerment. They can take those lessons and actually conduct their own uh, sessions to teach their girls. So making it relevant was really important because the goal was creating an experience around local context learning. How do we make our material that's designed for girls in the U.S. adaptable to girls around the world? So this is one of the things that the project was doing. The reason, the other reason why we picked Starlight too is that we wanted to actually be able to show a step-by-step -step process of how do you take our material and adapt it to a Rwandan context. So in a joint effort, um, a couple of things that they kept in mind was how do we adapt this material and make sure that it aligns with the Ministry of Education, SDG, core goals in their competence-based curriculum. Um, how, what are the most impactful careers for girls in Rwanda as opposed to girls in the U.S.? Which ones are they going to resonate the most with? 
what are the most relatable role models for these girls? And so it was really a great opportunity for us to choose from the 17 um, role models of women in 17 countries in Africa. So that was really exciting. So we had these sessions. uh, We created spaces for the girls to listen to the role models, talk about their careers in STEM and ICT and science. Um, We created space for them to actually reflect back on what the role models said. Uh, We gave them opportunities to also um, share about what the experience of what the role model said. For instance, for many of the girls, hearing about overcoming obstacles was um, life-changing for them. And so giving them the space that um, that was created for them was, I believe, life-changing for them. Uh, the final thing was that there was also a focus on transparency. So the whole idea was to make sure that we got buy-in with the local um, educators. So we did presentations at the Rwandan embassy here, also the embassy, um, the U.S. embassy in Rwanda as well. Um, so... It, it was a really fabulous experience, and we got 100 happy girls who can name all type of careers in STEM, and I still can't name them. So it was fabulous. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I've got a question for Lynn. Um, kind of a two-part question, I guess. First of all, um, has the pandemic impacted women and girls differently from men and boys? And the second part of it is, um, how is your programming evolving to meet the needs of, of the current COVID world and post-COVID world? Thanks, Frank. Um, we have seen, we all know, we live in a gendered world and gender impacts everything that we do. And quite often there is a disproportionate impact on women and girls. And we have seen this very dramatically with uh, the pandemic. Um, One example of that is um, the speed with which governments and organizations have been trying to take decisions and um, do emergency response they have in some cases gone back to old patterns of behavior and not been very inclusive and used old patterns of decision-making and with very little consultation, with very little outreach. And because many of the structures, existing structures are run by guys uh, in the countries, in the communities in which we're working, uh, many of those uh, decisions on what to do, where to do it, um, have been increasingly disenfranchising uh, women and girls in the communities. Um, so we definitely have seen a, um, a disproportionate uh, negative impact on women and girls. Um, and for us, as we're looking at how we're changing our or pivoting our programming going forward, Um, There's two specific things that I'd like to to mention. Um, One of them is, um, as many organizations are, we're taking a lot more of our training, our meetings to digital formats, just as we're doing this meeting here in a digital format. Um, It's not something that we had done very much because we're working in in cultures where it's nice to be able to meet people. You want to, you know, see them literally face to face and shake hands. Um, Um, And that's a lot of the trust building 
um, that you do when you're talking to somebody um, directly. And so we're pivoting a lot of our, our work, our meetings, our trainings to, to digital. But I think one of the things that, um, that we've learned, interestingly, is um, we're working with some disability groups um, because part of our organization goal is to be inclusive and, um, and to leave no one behind. Um, and that means that for, um, for any types of disabilities, we're always looking to see how we can improve the water and sanitation access. But now that we're going to more of our training, our learning, our meetings through a digital platform, it's been very interesting in partnering with, in working with our disability partners, because they've actually been slightly ahead of us. Um, because they have already been challenged and they are challenged to do meetings and things physically. And so they've actually, we're learning from them now some of the tools and tips in training, in meetings, um, through online and digital materials. And so we have, um, we're using them as our technical consultant as we're, de as we're developing our, um, our online tools and training materials. Um, the second pivot that we're making um, is really looking at that intersection between health, water, and climate change, because the, the pandemic has really shown the intimate link between those and the intersectionality. And so for us, what that means is, um, for example, in the Mekong Delta in, in the southern part of Vietnam, they've been dramatically impacted by climate change. There's seawater intrusion, so it's contaminating their drinking water sources. So that's a direct result of, the, of climate change. And how is that impacting with the pandemic? If you don't have access to water, it's very difficult to have good hygiene practices. And so we're really looking at that intersectionality between climate change, water sanitation, and health. And so that's how we're reorienting some of our work because we know that, um, well, we hope <laughs> that um, as we're moving into the sort of the recovery phase of COVID-19 and the pandemic, we still will be facing climate change. And so we're looking at that intersection and seeing how we can bring those two together so that the responses that we're putting in place now to respond to COVID-19 are also responses that will be helpful towards um, alleviating some climate change issues. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, Carrie, I have a, a two-part question for you as well. I'd like to give everybody two parts of a question. Um, first of all, why is uh, Girls on the Run so relevant and so needed? And the second is to tell us about the emotional learning, social emotional learning uh, and how uh, Girls on the Run serves as a safe place? Frank, terrific question. And I feel like I can answer both of those questions in one answer because <laughs> Girls on the Run addresses the whole girl. It's the physical, yes. And we use running as a tool to really develop and, and tap into the limitless potential of the social, emotional, mental, cognitive, and spiritual part of each human being, in this case, our girls. And, um, you know, when we think about a pandemic and we look at what we're all experiencing right now in very different ways, we know that there's trauma involved. And anytime that there's trauma, we really need to take that opportunity to sit and be and allow people to truly feel it. 
And our curriculum is built around social emotional learning. In fact, we were, um, we were noted by Harvard University as a top social emotional learning program um, last year. And, you know, the beauty of that is that when we meet with our girls, Yes, there's a curriculum and it is absolutely built on social emotional learning where girls are encouraged to show up as their authentic selves and to be welcomed as they are that day, however they show up. And to land in a safe spot, which is the one of the roles of our coaches, is to create a safe environment where girls feel physically and emotionally safe and therefore then can totally be themselves and learn what that feels like. Because there are so many places in this world where our girls spend time where they cannot be themselves 100% or they feel that they can't be. And same with women in this world. So, um, so where we really have the opportunity to be extremely relevant right now and have been in the past is partnering with our schools. And since we are an after-school program, partnering with our schools to help open those doors and those conversations with these girls who who are just, we know, struggling. And we're in touch with so many of them. And we know that this is something that they never, ever have experienced and nor do they ever want to again. And it's showing up in so many different ways in their, in their home lives on so many different levels. So Girls on the Run is incredibly uh, relevant right now and significant. And, um, and we plan to be there for our girls this fall and are doing all kinds of upside down ideas of programming to be there in, in person to the extent that we can and virtually and remotely, um, of course, as well. Thank you very much. Before we get to Evelyn, I just want to let Linda know uh, we, we'd appreciate being able to see her uh, and hear from her in a few minutes. But Evelyn, I have a couple of questions for you. Um, okay. First of all, um, why is it important to have direct uh, service organization? That's the first part of the question. And the second is, can you elaborate again on the importance of, of a holistic take on education? Okay. Well, so having a direct service organization is extremely important because when we're dealing in extremely poor areas and with children and girls who have been, you know, doing the type of work that we're dealing with, um, there's a reason why these children and these girls are on the street, right? And it's not of their choices, right? And like I said earlier, oftentimes what we find out in our research is that these girls and these children are there to work, to be providers of their families. So when we come in uh, and we fly in and we have all these gifts and all these resources and we empower them and we leave, what happens is the old pattern sets in, Right the reason why they were there in the first place comes back, which is if she was there and helping to feed her family, at some point in school, she will be hungry because school in most countries do go home between uh, 12 and 2. So when they go home and they're hungry, they're not coming back. So if you've given a backpack, if you've you know done something and you left, when they go back, you're not there to keep an eye on it. That's one thing. And the other thing that Carrie was just talking about is the social emotional package of it. You can't just take a child who was working in a cacao farm and has been working there since they were four and they're now eight and ask them to just go to school 
and have somebody stand at a blackboard and open a book and just everything will be pretty, right? So they need to be put in an environment that will take care of the reason why they're on the street and look at what they're going through on a daily basis to be able to try their best to, you know, attend to these issues. So that's why for me personally, I think having that service is very important because then, you know, you might not be able to, you know, impact 5,000 children in a month, but the 10 children, the 100 children that you have, you're really going to make sure that they are okay, they are fed, they're receiving, you know, the health services and the dental services that they need, and also their parents, you know. I tell parents here all the time, that, like, how do you convince the parents to give you their children? I said, well, there is no parent on this earth that doesn't want the best life for their children than they had themselves, right? And these women, uh, we go into these communities, they want a different life for their children, period. They're just having this life because that's what's available to them. So when you're there and you're direct service and you're a little more holistic, they can trust you and they can come to you and tell you what some of their issues are, right? In the two years that we have been operating full-time, before that, we were doing weekly programs, and then we transitioned to full-time. We've helped, the commun- we've helped the community that we're in have access to running water. We're not a clean water organization, right? But we come in, and we figure out that these women, they have to go miles and miles one way and then another miles another way, and they're not even bringing in clean water for their family, right? How can we help as an organization coming in bring these things in to be able to help them have a better life, okay? So these are some of the reasons why I truly believe in being direct service. I mean, trust me, Frank, it would be so much easier if I could just go and partner with three other schools and just walk out. I feel like my job will be way easier than it is right now. But it's all about being effective and making sure that we're taking the child from the child and the family from point A and being with them as a community and becoming part of their community all the way to the end. So that was one question. What was the other question again? Uh, the other question is, um, I, I think you, I, you may have answered, but the importance of the holistic take on education. Okay. So holistic uh, take on education, it's, there's two parts to that, right? So at the school, we are having kids that have never been to school. So we're not offering, you know, a program out of a book. We're taking the standard program of uh, the Ministry of Education of the country, and we're delivering it in a manner that is hands-on and it's skill-based, okay? So we're teaching these kids how to bake. We're teaching them how to garden. We're teaching them how to have all these other skills, while they're learning how to read and write. I think we're way past the time of going into um, other countries and saying, oh, let's teach people alphabetization. Like, we're, we're out of that. You and I are using a computer right now. So when we're coming in to bring help, let's be the help that helps. Let's not be, be the help that hurts in terms of, oh, they came in here, they did a program, and then five years later, these kids are presented a computer and they can operate that. So we try to have these lessons that incorporate all of these things so that these kids can be up to speed a little bit with the rest of their peers around the world. But also, if they go out of here, because we happen to be able to take a 12-year-old who's never been in school, if they go out of here, what would be their life afterwards if you're not able to enter into the traditional middle school, right? At least they have a skill at hand that they can leverage, right, and do something else. Like we have... Uh, programs like 
uh, our week of entrepreneurship, which is really looking at the community. I mean, most of you work around the world. We know that women are the backbones of families when we're talking about Africa. But if you ask, the first time we did our, intern, uh, our entrepreneurship program, we asked the children, do you know an entrepreneur? And all of them were like, what's that? No, we don't. And we had to tell them, yes, Evelyn coming and opening a school is a social entrepreneur, but your mother selling peanuts on the street so that you can have food on the table is also an entrepreneur right? So empowering them to look in within themselves. What is it that my culture has to offer? What is it that I have available to me that I can use, right? And giving them these practical skills, teaching them how to make something out of shea butter, right? We're measuring. So we're doing math. We're doing physics. We're mixing things, right? So we're really taking the school and the context of culture and making it relevant for these kids and where they are. And I'm sure when we go to Guinea, it's going to be completely different. And then we have the mothers that we're bringing in. And we're doing uh, trainings like teaching women about their rights. We all know that uh, female mutilation, genital mutilation is still going on in some of these areas, right? I remember one of our first um, programs were really to announce that we're gonna open the school and it was gonna be free. And I was one of the key speakers in my part, I think I opened up with saying, Every girl has the right to go to school and you as a mother has the right to enroll your child in school. And I've been gone out of the country for a minute. So these are things that I can easily say. But you know when you're speaking and you take a minute and you just look around and everybody just kind of look confused as if I've just said, you know, I don't know, like Evelyn is a unicorn or something like that. And these moments makes it real for me that they need to know these things. They need to be educated on these basics. They need to have this health program. Last year, we had uh, our women health educational and screening program that was centered around breast cancer and cervical um, cancer. And they had screening for these things on site. These women came. We had um, somebody that was translating in a local language, again, making the, the material available and relevant to them, right? And you can see that these things are needed. So when a mother, one of the mother that got screened, she came back out. I was, you know, doing something else. And she came back to me and she was just sobbing. And I was like, oh, my God, I just, what did I do again? Um, and she said, you know, if, if it hadn't been for you guys being here, I would not have known this result. I would not have been treated right now. And maybe who knows, right? Two years from now, I would have been out of here and my six kids who are first without a father would now be without a mother. So this is a way that you can go into a community and take all pieces and really bring it together in a way that is empowering the girl today and using her realities and letting her know there's a better tomorrow. And if we all come together and work as a community, we can achieve it. It might sound big. It might sound like there are too many moving pieces to the, to, uh, too many moving parts, but I'm glad everybody here, I see heads nodding because everybody here is doing, you know, these type of jobs and we know that it is needed. And so for me and for us at KSP, this is why seeing it at a holistic view, it's very, very important. And we, we're retaining anybody, right? All these women that are coming through our programs, all our children, we're retaining them. Why? Because we're taking care of more than what we can see and what we can quickly fix. We're giving them... A, a, a sustainable solution. Thank you very much. 
I'm going to turn the floor over to Linda. Who, uh, yeah, thank you. This, is, this has been a phenomenal discussion, learning about the impactful work that you're all doing. Um, from the chat, Sophie asks, and uh, Bev, this question is for you. Uh, she says, thanks so much for the inspiration and information. And she would like you to explain what is the Rachel. Oh, sure. Um, so the Rachel is um, a device made by World Possible. It's um, a pug, sorry. It's a kind of a pu- plug and play server um, that stores um, educational uh, material from um, any type of website uh, that, that can actually be cloned onto the system. Um, the Rachel, um, the size of the Rachel is maybe about the size of a, a router, maybe. So it's pretty small. You can put it in a in a backpack. Thank you, Linda. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's it's a great product, and it's been it's used by um, so many organizations that work in rural locate uh, rural um, or sorry rural locations around the world. Um, anyone can connect to it. It can hold a ton of educational material on it. It um, has a nice big uh, storage on it. Um, once you get access to it, it has a browser on it. So you can go to the browser just like you go to any other uh, browser on your computer. And you can use it just like you are using your own system. Um, it has special access for teachers and for students who want to um, be able to use the material for classroom instruction. There are folders for for the teachers can set up for students to go in um, when they're looking at a video or they're looking on a site or material, they can go into those folders where there's extra uh, lesson plans that have been written and basically um, allow the student to pretty much act as if they are in their own um, classroom at school. Do you remember the acronym for Rachel? Is it remotely uh, remote access? Oh my gosh! It's education, a community health and education learning. Thank you, Linda. Yes, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Awesome. So it's it's a great product, and it's been it's used by um, so many organizations that work in rural locations around the world. Um, anyone can connect to it. It can hold a ton of educational material on it. It um, has a nice big uh, storage on it. Um, Once you get access to it, it has a browser on it. So you can go to the browser just like you go to any other uh, browser on your computer. And you can use it just like you are using your own system. Um, It has special access for teachers and for students who want to um, be able to use the material for classroom instruction. There are folders for for the teachers can set up for students to go in um, when they're looking at a video or they're looking on a site or material. They can go into those folders where there's extra uh, lesson plans that have been written and basically um, allow the student to pretty much act as if they're in their own um, classroom at school. So, yeah. Thank you for that, Beverly. And then mm-hmm. Anne from our chat uh, has a question for Carrie. And her question is, in light of COVID, 
do you see any ways to extend the social and emotional lessons of girls on the run to women of all ages or for men? We do. In fact, uh, we, we so many times say that we wish we had a dollar for every single person who has said, when is there going to be a grown-up Girls on the Run program? We all need this. And, uh, and we wouldn't need to fundraise anymore. So, uh, yes, in fact, Anna, we are, we are doing some dreaming about what that would look like socially, emotionally, and what adult stakeholders' needs truly are um, in light of COVID at, at any time. And, uh, and we've had, we're doing quite a bit of research in that right now. And we, uh, we're, we have some wheels turning and that's all I can say right now, other than we are excited about thinking about how the program impacts, not just the girls, our coaches who coach, um, experience that entire magic that the girls and they walk away with the same tools. They're the people who say, we need this program too. Our board members, anyone who's involved, our volunteers, they all want more um, because we all know that we can uh, continue to grow in so many different areas. And the um, continuing on the social and emotional learning for Girls on the Run and uh, for adults, um, can you speak to some of the, the lessons of resiliency that you've seen in girls uh, participating in, the, in this program and something that we can take away from the work that you do and, and the success that you've had as an organization? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In fact, one of our lessons is about emotions. And many times in our lives, we talk about emotions being good or bad. And we reframe that for our girls and talk about emotions being comfortable and uncomfortable. And we talk about what it really feels like when you're expressing an uncomfortable emotion or when you're experiencing or feeling one of those and what it feels like when you're in your comfort zone of emotions. So, uh, so that's one piece that we, um, that we process with our girls. Another lesson is on um, using your I feel statements. So when you are in an emotionally charged situation, Um, our girls learn through experiential almost games and moving forward physically um, that the I feel when you because this is what I would like for you to do and imagine how that places them in this world when they are faced with who knows what in each of their home lives and they can use those words to really turn away any negativity because when you put it in your own feelings are yours and it really just allows the other person to feel safe in responding in a more positive manner. So, um, but those are just two examples of how we give our girls the tools to build resiliency. Great. Thank you. And Lynn, I want to bring you in, um, you know, you, you reference getting that local buy-in with with leaders as you're working um, locally and in countries. Do you have strategies, tips, insights, things that are important for anyone on the panel who's designing programs, but also, you know, for our audience in terms of evaluating and and ensuring that what they support is, is being done in the right way? 
Great. Thanks, Linda. No, that's a that's a great question because it is always important to find the right partners, to find the right opening to be able to access a, a community. I think firstly, um, all of our um, all of our staff in country, um, our, our staff in Vietnam is all Vietnamese. Our staff in Cambodia, Cambodian. Our staff in Lao, Lao, uh, and that's really important because um, you know you're starting from a place of trust and understanding, um, and then really identifying and doing sort of that landscape analysis to see who are the who are the trusted partners there, who are the organizations, and taking a long term view. We've been there for 30 years, so. Um, we're part of the community at whatever level. Um, for us, we work very closely with um, recognized national women's organization that have um, that can advocate at the national level, but that also have affiliates at regional and then community level. So we work with the women's union. And so they're recognized in the countries, they're recognized by the government, but they're also recognized at the household level. And so that for us was something that was very important. The long-term relationships, the trust um, and members of the communities themselves who really understand what does it mean to have this issue or problem and then coming up with the solutions and our staff helping to be the facilitator and the link and the honest broker in being able to help to facilitate the relationships. No, thank you. Great. And then uh, Kathleen uh, from the chat, and I'd like every speaker to respond to this. She wants to know, what is a favorite lesson learned from your careers in supporting girls and women? I think one of my favorite lessons to learn is that um, children around the world are eager to learn, right? So right now I'm doing um, an initiative locally due to COVID to provide educational packages to children who are home and don't have computers or tablets to be able to be homeschooled. And he has pivoted really towards serving children who are living with their families in RVs around main streets in throughout the Bay Area, right? So it's it's one of the ways, you know, like when you see it in a third world country, you're like, okay, well, it's, you know, it's a book. They don't really have libraries here. They don't have access to it. But right here on El Camino in Palo Alto, right by Stanford, I'll show up on tomorrow morning, actually, I have a distribution. I'll show up with these bags that are filled with um, age-level books after talking to the, to the families. And you can see the joy in the faces of these kids to get their hands on a book, right, while they're, they're at home. So it's easy to think that kids just want to be either on a computer or just play or, you know, not go to an after-school program or whatever that is. But then every single time, every single format that I'm able to bring in education and learning and reading. Children are so eager to receive that. It's, it always brings joy to my heart, I have to say. I'll take it quickly to the other end of the spectrum, because um, one of the lessons that I've learned is the importance of engaging grandmothers. Mm-hmm. and their wisdom, their ability to be able to tell that story about what it was like but then their ability to be able to link that with what's happening now and what they hope to see in the future. And I'm always amazed because sometimes you think, you know, well, they're grandmother, they're older, they're not going to have new ideas. 
And oftentimes they're the ones that are pushing us to try new things, to make sure that the future is better than the past. And once you can get a couple of grandmothers involved and on your side and helping to tell the story in their voice, in their way, then you are golden. Doors will open because if you're talking about getting trust in a community, you get the grandmothers involved and you can you can really move forward. So while everyone was talking about the kids, I'll go on the other end and talk about the lessons that I've learned from involving grandmothers in the work. I'd like to bring it back to the middle. Um, you know, we work with uh, volunteers who are recently out of college. These are young Africans who've been to college. And what I've been so amazed at is uh, how incredible the young women are, um, how, how strong they are, and how, how uh, equal they are to the men in the program. And I guess the lesson for me is to treat them the same. Um, but they are, they are so, they have every ambition that the male volunteers do. They, they don't get bossed around. Sometimes they boss around. Um, it's, they're, they're so inspiring, and it gives me such hope for the future of Africa. They want to go into politics. They want to go, they want to start businesses. They one of them became a farmer in Malawi. She actually stayed in her village and um, invested in farming. Um, they're, they're doing all over the map. The world is at their feet, and um, I treat them the same. That's my lesson. I, I love this question, and I almost I guess I have to piggyback off of Evelyn because um, the amount of time that I've been able to spend with girls who've gone through our pilot project has been amazing. Um, girls are so eager to learn. They just want an opportunity. And coming in with a message that's saying that you're unique, you're beautiful, you can do this, this are the possibilities for your life, is transforming. And so when I look at where many of our girls started at week one and where they ended up at week four, and they were transformed women, and not girls, women, they had taken a career idea with an empowerment lesson on how to overcome and figured out how to design a program to enhance agricultural yield in their communities, okay? So I'm amazed that just so, it it doesn't even take that much, but they're so eager to learn you give them the right tools and they will change the world. So I'm amazed. I'm amazed at girls around the world. First of all, Kathleen, thank you for this terrific question because you're getting like you're reaping and, and gosh, this is wonderful to hear this from everyone on this panel. Beverly, to piggyback on what you're saying, um, the gift of confidence, the the lesson I've learned in working with girls on the run is the gift of confidence being the most important thing we can give young girls today. Um, When we watch girls develop, you know, at the age of nine, they're at the height of their levels of confidence. That's crazy that confidence drops off after the age of nine. So let's, so that gift of confidence gives our girls the power and the voice to um, break a cycle, to fall down five times, stand up once, fall down four times, stand up twice, and really is the gift of resiliency. Um, and the gift of confidence truly does, you know, in the end, when we look at our girls crossing the finish lines of the 5Ks, 
I know that our future is bright when I see that gift of confidence shining through their smiles and through the tears. Awesome. Thank you. And, you know, we're at the point in our program where there's time for only one last question. Um, this has been an extraordinary discussion. But this last question I'd like each of you to um, answer for our audience. What can people do who are watching this program, who are learning about the work that you're doing? If I'm an individual viewer, what can I do locally? How can I get involved globally? But tell them what's an action step that they can do to support women and girls empowerment around the world. Donate. <laughs> and other actions? <laughs> Our program is about Africans helping themselves. So it's not about getting engaged um, for, you know, people from, the, from America. But um, it's definitely staying engaged, reading their blogs, responding to their blogs, encouraging them. Um, we have lots of drives uh, for projects or for uh, like care packages for volunteers as they're going to their sites. Um, there, are, there are lots of ways to get engaged, but really sit back and, and enjoy, pass the popcorn and watch them transform. So. Yeah, I would just encourage people to continue doing what they're doing right now in this hour. You've dedicated an hour of your time to learn more, to learn about different experiences, and to hear from a variety of people. And so continue to be curious and inquisitive and learn more. And when you find, you know, one of the areas that you're particularly interested in, dive in. And, um, and keep learning and keep being curious about the issues. Keep asking questions until you understand. Keep probing. So it's an important issue, empowerment of women and girls. And it's a long-term long issue. So stay in the fight with all of us. Awesome. I will totally agree with Lynn. I mean, it's so easy to look at this panel and think, oh, they're doing all the work, right? And I don't have to do anything, but there's a lot that needs to be done. And like we all know, if you're alone, you'll go faster. But if you are with somebody, you'll go further. And everybody present here wants to go further in the fight that they're doing for girls and for women empowerment in the world. So find that niche. Like, where do you want to impact? For me personally, I believe that education is at the base of everything. If you want to fight global warming, if people are educated, they won't understand what you're talking about. If you want people to have a better, you know, living situation, if they're not educated, they can't really tap into that potential. So find what it is that you really want to impact. And um, easily you can sign up for our newsletters besides donating. You can help us on social media. I mean, we live in a world today where uh Cat lovers, excuse me, but a cute cat get a thousand view and a thousand likes and a thousand share, and a cute kid picture get five likes. And all these things, they really may, maybe not bring in the money, but it helps us uh, spread the world. So if you're on today, you shared, you tagged us, you're helping in a way. And these are little steps that you can take, as well as looking at locally, what can you do right here? And you will have all of our contacts. Reach out. I would be happy to personally talk to you, whoever you are out there. I know this is a big thing to take right now, but I'll be happy to uh, empower you as a woman or as an individual to be able to go out there and help your community and help the world. <laughs>
Awesome. And then I do want to mention that um, Sophie uh, gave us the actual acronym for Rachel. And (laughs) and she says, she says, it's the remote access community hotspot for education and learning. So panel, we've come to the end of our time here. Um, Frank, it's been wonderful working with you on this program. And I want to give a special thanks to Dr. Beverly Thompson, Liz Fanning, uh, Evelyn Cumanian, Lynn Foden, and Carrie Johnson for their work and being on our panel. Um, Thank you for sharing these insights. Thank you for helping our audience learn more about the work that you're doing. And um, we encourage everyone in the audience to visit your websites, to stay in touch. And um, we also thank our audiences for joining us today and whoever will be watching the recording in the future. And now uh, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 117th year of enlightened discussion is closed. So thank you again. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.